Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Isaiah 23. Nothing like a good oracle of doom for Mother's Day. We're going to be in Isaiah 23. Many of you are familiar with the parable of the rich young ruler. Uh, Hey, Ryan, will you grab my glasses up here and bring them to me? Everything out there is a blurry mess. Thank you, brother. And I can't see the clock, and so I might just go until two or three. Thank you. Many of you are familiar with the story of the rich young ruler that he had observed the law, all of the law, except for one thing. Jesus told him he needed to go and to sell all that he had to those who had little. And it says he went away sad because he had much. And Jesus follows that up with an admonition that of how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people have figured that that eye of the needle is talking about the gates of the city and it's small and only one camel at a time can come through. That's not at all what Jesus means. He's talking about an actual eye of a needle. Of that little eye that you thread a piece of thread through and of the impossibility of a big camel fitting through that little hole. It can't happen. And he goes, that's how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is because we cannot serve two masters. We cannot love God and serve God, and we cannot love mammon, money, and serve mammon. Money, ultimately, Jesus teaches, isn't at the heart of the problem. It's not money that is at the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is at the root of all evil. Money can be a really good thing. Wealth can be a really good thing when it's leveraged for the glory of God and the good of others. But it can become an exceedingly wicked thing when it becomes a substitute for God. And there's very few things in this world, in this life, like wealth, to make us believe that we don't need God. Well, what's true for individuals can also be true for nations. And that's what we see in the nation of Tyre. In fact, as we look at Isaiah 23 and we look at this city and this region of Tyre that is coming under this oracle of judgment from Isaiah, I think that more so than any other nation that we've looked at since Isaiah 13, the city and the region of Tyre reminds me the most of our own country. Tyre is not so much concerned with dominating imperialistically the entire world. They want to become as wealthy as possible in such a way that all of the world powers would become utterly dependent upon them. They are the wealthy power brokers of industry and of economy in the ancient Near Eastern world. And their temptation, I think, is one of the many temptations that face our own nation today, one that we find in our own hearts. And what we're going to see in this oracle 
is not so much a concentration on the political or the military, but on spiritual. In fact, we see kind of two cycles of judgment here in Isaiah. From chapter 13 to chapter 20, we see a first cycle of judgment. And it has everything to do with political and military temptations that Judah has to ally itself with Egypt, with Babylon, against Assyria. And one after another, God tells Judah through Isaiah, don't trust in the nations, trust in me. Well, beginning in Isaiah 21, with Babylon again being touched on, in 22 and 23, the shift is from political to spiritual. That we see in Isaiah 21, the idols of Babel, of Babylon being brought down to the ground. We see the problem with Judah, with Jerusalem in chapter 22 is that they did not look to him who has done these things or planned these things. And we see the unforgivable sin in verse 14. Well, in verse 23, what we're gonna see is the temptation of wealth and of how insidious it can be to the spiritual well-being of a nation. Not just to Tyre, but even to God's people, Judah. And yet, through all of the judgment that we're going to see in chapter 23, we're going to see mercy. In fact, it's been encouraging, hasn't it, as we've gone chapter by chapter, oracle of doom after oracle of doom, to see flashes and lights and glimpses of mercy shining through of God's good and gracious purposes in saving for himself a people from every nation. In fact, when we start moving forward, we're going to see in as we come to the end of this section in chapter 40, 24, judgment on the entire world. But then we're going to see in chapter 25 and 26, we're going to see that mercy is not just shining through the cracks of judgment, but it is going to come front and center as we see God swallowing up death forever and we see Him creating all things new once again, keeping His people in perfect peace. It's going to be a sweet Time and a balm after close to 10 chapters of doom and of judgment. That that light of mercy is going to be turned on to full wattage when we get there in a couple of weeks. But here in chapter 23, we find the last judgment against a nation in the cycle of, of oracles. And the oracle is concerning Tyre. And here's what we're going to see. is the big idea in this passage. That behind God's judgment comes mercy, whereby former enemies of God become His friends. Behind God's judgment comes mercy, whereby former enemies of God become His friends. That's what we're going to see here. In fact, in verses 1 through 14, we're going to see, first of all, sin leading to judgment that's verses 1 through 14, but then in verses 15 through 18, we're going to see judgment leading to mercy. We're going to see, first of all, sin leading to judgment, and then in verses 15 and following, we'll see judgment leading to mercy. Start with me in verse 1. He says here, the oracle concerning Tyre. Now, the Tyrian civilization is what we're concerned with here. It is ancient. It is old. It's ancient even by the standards of the ancient Near East. It's part of, of, part of a greater region called Phoenicia, and Phoenicia was around long before Abraham. In the upper northern part of the Mediterranean coastland, Tyre and Sidon stood about 20 miles apart 
with the city of Sidon resting in the larger region of Tyre and of the city of Tyre being built on an island. And so it was a, it was a port town where ships would come in and out. It was a hub for wealth and for trading uh, and for industry. <clears throat> During Israel's conquest of Canaan after being brought out of Egypt, Tyre was known as, quote, the strong city of Tyre. And it rested just on the northern border of the land right on the edge of the land that was given to the tribe of Asher. The king of Tyre, we find many centuries later, always loved David. We see that in 1 Kings 5. And because King Hiram of Tyre loved David, we see that he was also willing to make a treaty with Solomon, his son. He even contributed to the building of Solomon's temple. But even in all of this, in this seemingly sweet relationship with Tyre, there was another darker and a more sinister side. Because not only did Solomon impart materials and labor from Phoenicia in order to build his temple, but he also imported brides. And when he imported his Phoenician brides, he also imported their Phoenician gods. And so after Solomon, Israel would be divided into two kingdoms through civil war. Tyre would prove to be a kind of evil genius to the northern kingdom. In fact, not too many kings later, you would have King Ahab who married Jezebel. Many of you are familiar with Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon. And so like Solomon's wives before her, Jezebel brought her gods with her. And idolatry was not only introduced, but it spread throughout the northern kingdom. And so all of the nations in the oracles of doom have been, up to this point, political corruptors. They've sought to build alliances with, with Israel to, to create a false sense of assurance and of security, but not tire. Tyre's different. The Egyptians and the Assyrians wanted to destroy Israel. But Tyre, in all of its history, never commits a single act of aggression against them. No, their goal is not to attack Israel or destroy Israel from without. Their goal is to corrupt Israel from within. Not by the sword, but by subversive ideology. Coincidentally, can this happen today? Not by the sword and not by tanks and by armies, but can a nation be ripped apart from the inside through subversive ideologies, beginning in high thinkers, those with PhDs, even through universities, in fact, even in our own age. Marxist thinkers knew even decades ago that if we can if we can transform and convert the universities, that in a matter of generations, we can take over the entire nation. Well, in a similar way, that's exactly what Tyre aimed to do in Israel. We're not going to come at them militarily. We're not going to come at them with the strength of the sword. What we're going to do is we're going to lure their hearts away from their gods, and we are going to get them to pledge allegiance to our God. And in so doing, we will in generations make them into us. It is an insidious, viral-like attack on the infrastructure, spiritually speaking, of Israel. And so it's for this reason that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, 
Amos, Zechariah, and Isaiah here in 23 all predicted the doom of Tyre. There's a sense in which Tyre's attack spiritually upon Israel, though they never came against them militarily, was far more dangerous than Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. God knew that. That is what he revealed to his prophets, and that's what the prophets preached. So Tyre was at the front and center as a nation who posed perhaps the greatest threat against Judah. Well, what we're going to see beginning in the second part of verse 1 through verse 7 is Tyre's epic fall. Look at this at the very beginning. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. He says, wail, O ships. Why? Well, it's because in Isaiah's vision, Tyre is destroyed. Both house and harbor, as we see here, are totally gone. And then everybody, depending on Tyre for their prosperity, well, what he tells them in verse 2 is, you guys all need to hush. Be still. He says, be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea, they have filled you. And on many waters, your revenue was the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchants of the nations. Tyre was where all of the merchants looked if they wanted to strike it rich. But now Tyre is a wasteland. Perhaps a good analogy would be a prophet saying to greedy stockholders, Wall Street has crashed. It has been closed. There's nothing left for you. Everything you have built has been lost. Well, that's essentially what Isaiah is saying to these, to these traders, to these shippers. And so in the heat of Isaiah's rebuke, it shifts from the dead to the living. The rebuke shifts from... Tyre that's been destroyed to Sidon that is still thriving. Verse 4 says, Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. Just as Isaiah told the ships in verse 1 to wail, and the merchants in verse 2 and 3 to be still, now he tells Sidon, commands them, that is the strongest remaining port city in the region, to be ashamed, or literally, be humiliated. Humble yourselves. The idiom that he uses here in verse 4 is of the sea speaking. And what the sea is speaking is absolute destruction. Tyre is barren, that's the imagery, that it's no longer fruitful, it's no longer giving birth to children. It's meaning that figuratively. It's completely Barren. In the ancient world, fertility was a sign of blessing. Barrenness was a sign of cursing. And so Isaiah is saying to Sidon, don't you go getting any big ideas. You might be licking your chops at the big opportunity. You see Tyre's been destroyed and this is your chance to become the economic power broker in the area. And he says, you need to humble yourselves. If the strongest port city in the ancient world didn't stand, would you dare take its place? Would you be motivated by the same greed that led them to their destruction? And do you think that would cause you to fare any better? No, in fact, the magnitude of the disaster in Tyre is so great, he says in verse 5 and 6, that even mighty Egypt is going to double over in pain. 
He says, when the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. The silence of the shattered cities in verses 2 and 3 gives way to grief in verses 4 and 5. And finally, as we see here in verse 6, a parade of refugees. The glory of Tyre has been reduced to a band of haggard refugees. And the taunt that Isaiah offers now turns to Tyre, the great corrupter, in verse 7. And he says, is this your exultant city? You thought so highly of yourself, you praised yourself, you thought so much of your own self-sufficiency, of the glory of your name and of your economic power and of the leverage that you had over all of the other nations, including my people, Jerusalem. Is this your exultant city who, whose origin is from days of old? No, you may have stood for thousands of years and yet I have taken you out in the blink of an eye whose feet carried her away to settle far away. Oh, what a reversal of fortune. With all its tradition, with all of its wealth, with all of its culture, where is she now? Well, the question at the end of these seven verses is, really, how did this happen? Or better yet, the question remains, why did this happen? And, and who is it that caused it to happen? Well, that's the question that Isaiah looks at in the answer to verses 8 through 14. So what we've seen in the first seven verses is Isaiah's vision informing Tyre of what will happen, but now beginning in verse 8, Isaiah's going to tell them why it's going to happen. Who has purposed this against Tyre? Million dollar question. Tyre, that is, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. Then he answers the question in verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. And for what purpose? Well, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Notice the play on words. He's purposed it against Tyre, the bestower of crowns. And he's done so to defile the pompous pride of all glory, the assumption that Tyre had that they were the king of kings. No, verse 8, whose traitors were the honored of the earth? No, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to dishonor all the honored of the earth. The Lord gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And we have seen that time and time again in these oracles, haven't we? That that same admonition that James gives in James chapter 4 to this proud church that's devouring one another because of their lust and their greed, because they don't get what they want. He says, you are laughing as if this is a laughing matter in your pride and you ought to wail and weep and mourn. Because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. That if you want to make yourself friends of the world, you cannot be friends with God. Same thing here. God is opposing the proud. Unlike 
I think many Christians, notice here, trying to make sense of natural calamities today. The rise and fall of nations, natural calamities, tsunamis, pandemics. Isaiah is not embarrassed and he is not shy to say, God planned it, God did it. That message is no more popular and no less true in Isaiah's day than it is in our own. Do you see that word there in verse 8 and verse 9, purposed? Perhaps some of your translations say planned. That is one of Isaiah's favorite words to describe God's sovereign, immutable, that is unchanging, purposes. In fact, we've already seen this word used once before several weeks ago in Isaiah 14. Take a look with me. Just by way of reminder, Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, this is concerning the fall of Assyria, as I have planned, same word, so it shall be, and as I have purposed, same word, so shall it stand. Verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed, same words concerning the whole earth, not just Assyria, but everything. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all nations. For the Lord God of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? Nobody. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Nobody. This is Isaiah's favorite word to talk about God's immutable, sovereign purposes over every person, over every nation, over every molecule in existence. It all exists to serve His purposes. And He is active in His creation to bring about all things according to His sovereign and immutable plan for His glory and for the good of His people according to the promise of the gospel. You say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I can see how good things come from God's hand because God is good. But bad stuff like the death of a nation, like tsunamis and pandemics, well, isn't that just the result of a fallen world or of fallen sinful humans in their, in their free decisions? God doesn't really have anything to do with that. Those are just the consequences of, of, of free will with sim, sim, sinful humans, is it not? Well, is that so? Keep your finger in Isaiah 23 and turn to Isaiah 45. As in everything, we need our instincts about God to be calibrated by His Word. Our hearts and our own reason, if we try to rise up to understand the glory and the purposes and the character of the incomprehensible God, apart from His Word, will always lead us into folly and idolatry. It will always lead us to a God made in our own image. Only an incomprehensible God who reveals Himself can be a God like the one we find in Isaiah 45. Pick it up in verse 5. He says, I am the Lord. Notice those all caps on the covenant keeping or covenant making, covenant keeping Lord. 
I'm the God who has covenanted himself to a certain people, and all that I do is for bringing about their good according to my purposes. I'm the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Then look at verse 7. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, in Hebrew, shalom, peace, and I create calamity, rach, evil. I am the Lord who does all things. That is not the God that we come up with in our imaginations. I fear that that is the God that we too often feel a need to apologize for to the world. This is the God who is the king of all things, who is sovereignly bringing about all things according to his purpose, such that not a single king or a single law or a single bullet in a single war or a single strand of a single virus ever falls outside of his sovereign purposes. He directs and guides all things while still yet maintaining the freedom of his creatures to fulfill his perfect will. And so Isaiah is not shy about proclaiming God's sovereign purposes in and through all things, from rogue nations to rampant viruses. God has planned it, and God has done it. We need to pause here for just a minute. Because you're saying, well, wait a minute, Jeff. Does that mean that we need to sound like those crazy preachers on the 700 Club? That every single time something happens, we start yelling judgment and we start pointing what God is doing and why God is doing it. And Well, no, that's not exactly what I'm saying. We can say with confidence who has purposed all things to happen because that has been revealed in his word. So we can say with confidence, who has purposed all things to happen, both good things and bad, both well-being, that is shalom, and calamity, rach, evil, even if we don't know in history, in time, what his purposes are or why he's bringing it about, outside of just saying it's ultimately for his glory and the good of his people, which he's revealed. This is why I have, on the one hand, no problem with television preachers attributing natural disasters to the sovereign hand of God. That is good theology. But where they need to stop short and where we need to stop short is presuming to know why God has caused that tsunami or why God has caused this or that pandemic. Where God has spoken, we speak. He forms light, he creates darkness. He makes well-being and he creates calamity. He is the Lord who does all these things. We cannot be ashamed to speak those things because God has spoken it. God planned it, God did it. But where God remains silent... We remain silent. What is God doing then through all these disasters? What is God doing through the rise and fall of nations? What is God doing through this worldwide pandemic? I don't know. He hasn't told us. 
and presuming upon the hidden will of an all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful God is above our pay grade. But notice, Isaiah isn't flapping his chops like he's on the 700 Club. He has received a vision from God and all that he proclaims concerning Tyre is what God has told him would happen. He is not presuming upon God's hidden will. God has revealed his will and he has told Isaiah to speak it and that's exactly what Isaiah does. Isaiah knows not only who has purposed this calamity upon Tyre, that is the Lord of hosts, verse 8, or rather verse 9, but he also knows what the Lord of hosts is going to do because God has revealed it. And so Isaiah speaks it in verses 10 and following. Pick up with me in verse 10. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There's no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there, you will have no rest. Notice in verse 10, you see that word restraint? Some of you have a note in your margin for that word, saying they can also be translated shipyard. You say, well, that's strange. Restraint and shipyard are a lot different. Well, that's because in Hebrew, Hebrew is written only in consonants. The vowels came thousands of years later through the Masoretic uh, scribes. And so sometimes in various manuscripts, those vowels might be different or the way that those consonants are all relating to others might be slightly different. And so one translation might be favored over the other because they share a similar root. And so here we have restraint or shipyard. It could really go either way. I'm going to argue that shipyard might actually be a better translation. And here's why. You see, those merchant fleets that were all drawn to Tyre like a magnet, well, in verse 10, they've got nowhere to go. There are no more shipyards anymore. So God tells the greedy merchants bound for Tyre to scatter randomly like the waters of the Nile during flood season because you've got no place to go. He is completely disrupted the economic flow of the region. And in verse 11, we see once more that it was not just happenstance, it wasn't just coincidence, it wasn't just the political wheels, the political machine turning, it was the Lord who purposed all of it. Verse 11, he is the one that stretched out his hand. He is the one that has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord is the one who has given command. That phrase, stretched out his hand, you might be familiar with because we see it all over the Old Testament. It's used to denote, to denote both judgment and redemption. That, that, strain, that same outstretched hand that was used, it was used to redeem Israel from Egypt, and that, strain, that same outstretched hand is the one that sent plagues upon Egypt to do it. It brings both redemption and evil. That's why God says to Israel after he brought him out from Egypt, who is Satan, is it not I who brought you out with an outstretched arm? Was it not I that purposed it? Was it not I that accomplished it? Was it not my power that did all these things, both in redeeming and in judging? Well, he's saying the same thing here. 
that even the mighty nations, just like anguished Egypt all the way back in verse 5, they are going to be shaken by his hand when he destroys Canaan by a mere command. Canaan and Phoenicia are the same territory. He's using them synonymously. That the Lord is going to stretch out his hand with power such that the nations are going to tremble so that they might know that there is but one God in heaven and on earth and below the earth and he is the only true God. And he is the God of Israel. Well, in verse 12, notice that God tells them that at the end of the day, geography isn't the problem. He says, you can try to cross over to Cyprus. But simply getting a fresh start by changing your circumstances or your mailing address isn't going to accomplish anything. Because every place you go, your sin is going to go with you. And wherever your sin goes, there you are going to find my hand stretched out against it. He says no matter where you go, no matter where you change your address, you can uproot, you can move to another city, all you want. But even there, you will have no rest. Because your problem is not circumstantial. Your problem is not geographical. Well, we picked the wrong island to do commerce from. Your problem is spiritual. And picking up and moving isn't the solution. Repenting and turning and trust to the Almighty God who has come down heavy with His hand, who in His mercy would lead you to Him, is the only solution. And what's true of them is also true of us. Friends, we need to remember that when God's hand comes heavy upon us, it is not because we have merely put ourselves in an unenviable situation. It's not because we've put ourselves merely in a city that we shouldn't be in or in a town or a job that we shouldn't be in or even ultimately around friends we shouldn't be around. Though Those things can certainly be influences. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. That's certainly true. But ultimately all of that has been motivated and moved and driven and swayed by our own hearts, which is kind of like the steering wheel of our humanity, moving us and driving us and motivating us to do everything that we do. And all of the rebellion that is in our heart that would refuse to submit to God and obey His law, that refuses to love Him with everything that we've got and to love others even more important than ourselves, is rooted in a rebellion against God and is deserving of judgment. Oh, friend, listen to me. If you are not a Christian, then merely a change of circumstances, if your sin has brought about disaster in your life, that is the Lord's hand coming heavy on you. Not that you would go, well, I need a new city. Well, I need a new set of friends. Well, I need a new boyfriend or a girlfriend. Well, I need a new spouse. It is His gracious, merciful, though strong and severe hand that you would stop in your tracks and realize the only solution is God himself. Because your problem is not ultimately circumstantial. Your problem is spiritual. That you have walked in rebellion to him. And the severe hand of God against you is evidence of his great heart of mercy towards you. That you would not just go unchecked in your sin forever, but that you would stop where you are. That you would relinquish 
control over your life, no longer walk according to your own wisdom, that you would no longer believe the lies of Satan and the deceptiveness of sin, and that you would trust in the word of the Lord, that he is a sufficient Savior, and that he has proven himself, that he has revealed his heart to sinners such as you in the person and the work of his Son, Jesus Christ who came and in every way resisted temptation that we have given into, that loved the Lord our God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, where you and I have been feeble and frail on our best days, where he has loved every single person he has encountered more than he has loved himself, not reluctantly, but eagerly and willingly. He is so unlike us, and that is, is for our good. That such a glorious Savior, revealing a heart of God that we're so uninclined to believe could be true, reveals that heart even further, not simply by healing and loving and moving towards sinners, but by His willingness to die in the place of every single sinner who would turn from sin and trust in Him. Trust me. Trust my word. That word is a reflection of my heart, and my heart is for sinners like you. Stop running. You don't need a new address. You need a new heart. And that's what I want to give you in Christ if you would turn and trust in me. Forgiveness of sins, a righteous standing before me, a new family in the church, and a hope of an imperished inheritance forever stored in heaven for you in Christ Jesus. Why would you ever trade the promise of Christ for a new address? Jesus is so much better. Friend, trust in Christ. Well, in verses 13 and 14, God's destruction of Tyre will be such that the land of the Chaldeans that is, the people that was not. The little guys on the block, they are going to end up looking like world powers compared to Tyre. In fact, scholars don't really know who these Chaldeans are in verse 13, but they are sure of one thing in verse 14, and that is that Tyre will be a wasteland. Sin has led to judgment. This whole section, you notice, begins with wailing of the ships, and it ends with wailing of the ships. Wailing is where their sin has gotten them. But in verse 15 to 18, we're going to see that this judgment ultimately leads to mercy. Follow along with me. Verse 15, In that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. And at the end of 70 years, it's going to happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre. She'll return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. And her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will be not stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who... Dwell before the Lord. Notice, first of all, in verses 15 and 17, three times Isaiah mentions the end of 70 years. That might be speaking about a literal 70 years. 
That is like the days of one king. That might fall right around the time that Babylon comes and attacks Tyre and destroys it. But it might also refer figuratively to the fullness of time as it does elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, in verse 16, in the ensuing centuries, what we see ultimately, not just in verse 16, but through the rest of the Bible, what we see is that Assyria would end up taming Tyre, Babylon would end up beating Tyre, and then ancient Greece would finish them off so that by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Tyre and Sidon, though they were once great and mighty and wealthy and glorious and powerful, they've gone from Richie Rich to the poor kids on the block. And so Isaiah refers to Tyre, the end of this verse 15, as a washed up and forgotten prostitute. That is your destiny, according to your rebellion and sin against God and your desire to corrupt his people. That you have lured her, the people of God, like a prostitute, but you will be forgotten and all of your acts will be done away with. But we notice that at the fullness of time, in verse 17, Tyre is going to return to prominence. That the Lord is going to build her back to glory. That the prostitute is going to sing her song again, only it's going to be a different tune than the one that she sung before. Notice in verse 18, that what this washed up old harlot is selling is not ultimately abomination to the Lord as it once was, but it is holy to the Lord. That is set apart for use by God. No longer will she hoard her riches as she once did, but she's going to give it away. And to whom will she give all of her merchandise? Notice in the end of verse 18, it's going to be to those who dwell before the Lord. And so according to Isaiah, Tyre is going to suffer under God's judgment, but then God is going to restore and transform Tyre. But how do we know that Tyre is going to be transformed? It's because instead of pride, there's going to be generosity. The wealth that they once used to rob God of His glory and to corrupt God's people are now going to be used to exalt God's glory and to bless God's people. We see that this promise is at least partially fulfilled in Israel's return to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. In Ezra chapter 3, who is it that supplies materials to rebuild the temple? It's Tyre, whom God will use in about 70 years time, from the time of Judah's judgment. It'll be Tyre. And who is it that pays for it? Well, it's going to be the Persians. And so God is going to use the godless Persians to pay the godless Tyrians to supply the materials to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem whereby all of the, the shadows that point to Christ and of God's ultimate purpose would be reestablished and God's plan continues to carry on unthwarted by even the wickedness of the nations. He uses even their wickedness for his own purposes. Amazing. But even that plan, perhaps 70 years from now, literally 70 years from Isaiah's prophecy or 70 years perhaps from when Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon, 70 years from that point perhaps, that that points to an even bigger plan within the fullness of time. Because this nation in verse 23 that is slated for judgment ends up being the object of God's mercy. In fact, Psalm 87.4 looks forward to a day when Zion, remember the dwelling place of God where God dwells with his people, that is the new Jerusalem, 
where Zion counts Tyre on its rolls. In fact, if you go back even further to Psalm 45, that's the Messianic marriage psalm. One of the bride's attendants is none other than Tyre. Centuries after Isaiah and Ezra, the gospel came to Tyre. We read in Luke 6 that people from all over Tyre and Sidon came to Jesus when he was preaching throughout all of Galilee and left Galilee, and it says that Jesus healed every one of them in Tyre and Sidon. One such person, perhaps, was a Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. You remember? Jesus heals a woman's daughter because of the woman's faith, even though she was a Gentile. That's not who the promises were given to. And yet the promises are given to those who, by faith, put their trust in the Son of God as the ultimate fulfillment of the word and plan of God revealed to the ages. She says, I know you will if you would. And Jesus says, I will, I'm willing. And he does it. And so Jesus, the true Israel, proved to be a light to the nations as the gospel came to Tyre and even to this one individual woman. Oh, but listen, that isn't in there. The saving power of Christ doesn't stop with this one woman. And it didn't stop merely in his preaching and healing ministry. Those healings and those miracles that, that gave testimony to the reality of who he said he was and of the truth of the gospel. No, that gospel continues to spread and to bear fruit even after he dies, even after he's been raised, even after he sends to the Father, even after the apostles go about preaching the apostolic gospel, even in Jerusalem, beyond Jerusalem. And that's why we find in Acts chapter 12, where the word of God continued to prevail, there we sing King Agrippa, evil King Agrippa, eaten by worms King Agrippa, because he sought to put himself in the place of God. He went and visited Tyre, and we're told that he did so because there were many disciples there in Tyre, of all places. But it doesn't stop there. We get to Acts chapter 21. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey and he's going back to Jerusalem. He's already telling churches that he's visited at that point, you will never see me again. Paul knows what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He knows that his life is most likely going to be taken and yet he's willing to do that for the sake of faithfully filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the people of God. And on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the death sentence, on his way to the electric chair for the sake of the gospel, he stops in one place for a week and he receives encouragement from all the disciples in that place. And what was the place? It was Tyre. That even then, God kept his promise. That Tyre... It's being transformed by the gospel. And in that transformation was supplying out of its abundance, out of its own wealth, now spiritually speaking and not materially speaking, is now supplying, verse 18, for those who dwell before the Lord, even the greatest apostle. That 
is what God has purposed. That's amazing. And if God is able to do that through the power of the gospel over centuries, among nations, as he gathers for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, is he not able to sovereignly and faithfully fulfill his own plan in your life to keep you and secure you, to sanctify you, and to save you to the uttermost, and to give you the inheritance that has been stored up for you in that new heaven, the new Jerusalem, where we get to dwell with him forever. Friends, listen. As the United States of America, we are not Israel. We were Tyre. We were those wrapped up in our own greed, in our own selves, in our own glory, in our own self-sufficiency. And yet God in his mercy has been kind to visit Tyre with the gospel such that you and I might be counted among his people, the true Israel, in Christ alone. This is what God has always purposed. Praise be to him. Let's pray.